Hello, good evening and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, the Irish bid to host the America's Cup, It's Not Dead Yet, and the Chieftain's musician Matt Malloy on his love of boats and his many sailing adventures. News of the bid of Cork to host the America's Cup, the world's premier sailing event, has gone dark in recent months. Ireland had emerged as the preferred bidder to host the Grand Prix-like Formula 1 event in 2024, but the bid seemed to fall away over concerns on costs. But it's still bubbling away in the background, it appears. Assessments of the plan and the costs are going ahead even as we speak. Irish examiner journalist Owen English has been getting a bit of a feed on the manoeuvrings all along and he told me today what the latest was on Ireland hosting the event in 2024. Well, in the last few weeks, Fergal, a new sort of a race setup arrangement has been presented to officials in government. Um, essentially what happened during the summer was that uh, a technical team from the race organisers uh, reassessed the various options that they had looked at in Cork Harbour and in Cork City for uh, the various race events that would be going on. Now, obviously, the race course itself is pretty much nailed down. That would be at the mouth of Cork Harbour. But the issue was, uh, from the state's perspective, was, was how much money was it going to require to uh, for the state to invest in order to secure the race? And the state was looking at fairly substantial costs in the order of 150 million euro to invest in infrastructure in places like uh, Rushbrook, where the yachts would be hauled out and where the teams and technical teams would be based, uh, and also uh, uh, in areas in the city centre around the city keys where the race village would be established. And in September, the state basically said, look, the costs of staging this are too high as far as we're concerned. We need another six months to do a due diligence on this entire process. And over the last couple of weeks, uh, there's been toing and froing, a lot of engagement between both sides, and uh, a new setup has been proposed where a lot of the focus now is going to be on using state owned land uh, for the race village and for the technical teams and for the yachts to be hauled out, which would require a lot less state investment, reducing effectively the state's bill for staging this down to about 50 million euro. Uh, and the argument that's being used to sort of push this option now is that whatever money the state invests in securing this race will yield long-term benefits on state, on public land. So at the moment, what's happening is civil servants are assessing all of these new locations. They're running the rule over the costs that will be required to bring these uh, locations up to the required standard for the staging of the America's Cup. And um, that's where we are, Fergal. We're expecting a decision, hopefully, before the end of March. That's when the six-month period runs out. But against the backdrop of all of that work is the fact that the race organisers need to announce a venue. They're working through their own timeline. And the question now is, will the state make a decision on whether to go ahead with the bid or not in time for the race organisers to actually uh, partner with the state on this event? The reason we're talking about it tonight is that the race organisers New Zealand, they said they'd give the government six weeks. The six weeks is up this weekend, but they've said nothing. Uh, the New Zealanders, there's a feeling in New Zealand they want to give it to us really badly. Yeah, I get that sense too. I mean, when 
you might remember back in September when uh, a, a preferred uh, bidder was due to be announced. Uh, you know, the government balked at the idea, uh, much to everyone's surprise uh, in Cork City, I must admit. You know, there were rumours circulating around that the government was going to sort of pass up this opportunity. Uh, but when the race organisers came back and sort of said, OK, look, we won't announce a preferred bidder just yet. We're going to give the state a little bit more time to get its head around this proposal. Um, that was back in September. My understanding is that there has been a lot of engagement between both sides and that the New Zealanders are very anxious that they give as much time as possible. Now, within reason, I suppose, Fergal, but they are very anxious that the state is given the time that it has asked for. To, to look at this proposal in detail, to establish exactly what exposure the state could be uh, facing in terms of investment in parts of Cork City and Cork Harbour in order to secure the race. And um, at the moment, my understanding at this is that this process is still very much uh, alive and that the Irish bid is still very much alive. And they've brought in an international sports assessment or organisation based in the UK. Yeah, this company, Origin, it's, it's their job to basically go out to the market and to gauge the level of interest from various countries or hosts, potential host cities, and see who would like to organise or to who would like to host this event. Um, and then it gives assistance to all of those potential bidders on pulling their bid together. It facilitates site visits by technical teams from the, the race organisers, from the New Zealanders. Um, that technical site visit took place in Cork Harbour uh, in summer 2020 and uh, it was at that point that that Cork emerged as the preferred bidder Um, and we are still on that course you know Cork it would seem in the Irish bid it would seem is the preferred venue where this race could be held in 2024 but the question is is the state on board with yeah, it? despite the best efforts of the state now the new plan and you published part of it in the Irish Examiner a week or two ago it would have the race village much closer to the city centre from my understanding there's a real sense here that whatever is done around the America's Cup that the city and the region gets maximum benefit from it in terms of an economic spin-off and in terms of uh, media exposure uh, internationally. I mean, it's a massive event. Uh, And after the last two years that the tourism and hospitality industry has had, they're all pushing for this to happen. They say that, you know, we don't know where we'll be in terms of COVID in 2024, but that opportunities like this don't come along for countries or for cities very often and that everything possible should be done to ensure that Ireland grasps this opportunity. And so what they're trying to do is is make sure that not just Cork Harbour, not just the towns on the coast, towns like Cove and Carrigaline and Crosshaven, that it, the benefit isn't just felt there, that it's felt in the city centre. And I suppose they're also looking at transport options for visitors that might want to come in terms of uh, air links and rail and bus links. And obviously accommodation will be a big factor. So, you know, the hotels, uh, not just in Cork City and County, not just in the neighbouring counties, but I've been told that, that there will be a definite regional benefit from an event of this scale and and possibly even a significant national benefit as well. So they have decided to bring the race village right into the heart of the city centre and uh, the proposal is to base that race village on Kennedy Quay. It's a publicly owned site on the city's south docklands. Um, Now, part of it is in private ownership, but there have been negotiations with the landowner there around the possibility of staging uh, the race village on Kennedy Quay. It's hosted Seafest in the past. People would, people might remember that event. It's, it's always gone down very well in terms of a celebration of our maritime heritage. 
the hope is that people would go out to, to Cork Harbour and line areas of the coast and watch the racing just off Roaches Point and then people would come into the city centre in the evenings for prize givings and for live music and for a food village and all of the stuff that would come with an event of this scale. And doing that, bringing it to the city centre, it takes out a lot of the infrastructure costs that we're looking at, as in upgrading railways, building roads to areas that were that are very, very small. Exactly. That's one of the reasons why public sites are now the focus. There's a sense that, you know, if we can invest in publicly owned land as part of the America's Cup event, at least there will be this legacy benefit in the long term. Now, the South Docks is targeted for significant growth over the next five or 10 years anyway. Ocala Properties recently came out with a 350 million euro redevelopment plan for an area just next to Kennedy Key. There's also a massive development proposed for the Tivoli Docks, where the Port of Cork is currently based, but their operations are moving downstream. And again, a lot of the infrastructural proposals that are being talked about now are things that are planned for the next five or ten years anyway. I wonder how the competitors feel like this because going from the city centre out of the race area it's a bit of a trek it will take them you know an hour a day. Uh, yeah well, well I think the proposal Fergal is for the yacht and their, their racing teams to be based at the Tivoli docks uh, and then for some kind of either bus or rail transport to ferry them from there up to the city centre. I suppose it is a bit of a trek, but I'm told that um, something similar has been done in other race venues, that similar arrangements have applied during other America's Cup events. So while the initial proposal was to base the yachts and their technical teams in Rushbrook, right next to Cove and quite close to the mouth of Cork Harbour, it's not that much further upstream to the Tivoli docks. And I think, you know, when it comes to sort of balancing out all of the benefits against all of the cons of, of staging the event in, in one country or another, I think that one is pretty low down on their list of priorities. I don't think they'd mind that trip every day to the race zone if it meant that they got to host or if they got to stage the event or, or participate in the event in, in Ireland. So the word is it's not dead yet. <laughs> Absolutely not dead in the water yet. Um, despite the best efforts of some people in government, um, it seems that the tide might have turned on this over the last couple of weeks, Fergal. The mood music has certainly shifted. I think the endorsement of Cork County Council recently has helped uh, and people are beginning to see this as the opportunity that I think most people recognise it is. Owen English of the Irish Examiner. Now you remember this. There once was a ship that put to sea The name of the ship was a bully of tea The winds blew up her bowed up down Oh below my bully boys blow <gasps> Soon may the weatherman come to bring my sugar The weatherman's sea shanty by Nathan Evans was an internet sensation this year. But the beauty of the song hid the brutality of the practice it was referring to. Whaling, which is now banned by almost every country in the world. Seascase contributor Norman Dunlop has been looking back at the whaling industry. The outrage over whale killing, especially by the Japanese, focuses attention on a tradition that goes back centuries. In Japan, whale meat is valued as a delicacy and a source of protein. However, in the 18th and 19th centuries, whales were hunted primarily because they were source of the oil that lit lamps and lubricated machinery. Nowhere was this enterprise more important than the ports of New England on the east coast of the United States, where there was a strong seafaring tradition. At first, whales were hunted by small craft that put out from the shore. 
However, by the 19th century, whaling had become a lucrative deep-sea industry. Voyages sometimes lasted for years, as whalers travelled great distances to the South Pacific region. By the 1830s, the US had become the pre-eminent whaling nation. Between 1800 and 1860, 10,000 men manned the hundreds of ships. A significant proportion of crews were Afro-Americans, some fleeing from the slavery of the Confederate States. The port of New Bedford became the vibrant hub of the industry. The harbour was full of activity and movement as ships departed and others arrived after long and hazardous voyages, their holds full of barrels of valuable oil. Whaling in that era was a tough, rough and extremely dangerous business. When a whale surfaced, it often sprayed a jet of water into the air from its blowhole. The shout, there she blows, went up, the small boats were launched and rowed vigorously towards the prey. The harpooner, a man of great skill and strength of arm, stood in the prow, waiting for the precise second to strike. When the big barbed harpoon speared into the mammal, the thick rope attached to it played out. Then the whale boat was often taken on what was called a Nantucket sleigh ride, as the whale plunged away at speed, dragging the boat behind it. It often took two hours before it tired and the whalers were able to kill it. But wounded whales could be dangerous, thrashing about, charging. Their huge tails could come smashing down on boats and rowers. One of the most enthralling descriptions of this high-risk hunting came from the pen of Herman Melville in his classic novel Moby Dick. That was the name of the great white whale that was obsessively hunted by Captain Ahab. When he eventually tried to kill it, the whale won the battle. It buffeted and sank the ship with the loss of life of Ahab and all on board, except the survivor who tells the epic story. Melville, who was born in New York, embarked on a whale ship in 1841 and spent three adventurous years in the Pacific Ocean. It seems he got the idea for his enduring book from reading about the fate of a US whaling ship, the Essex. In the Pacific, in 1825, it was charged and smashed by an enraged bull whale. The crew managed to escape in their small whaleboats, but they were 1,000 miles from land. Most died during the next harrowing days before the skeletal survivors were picked up off the coast of South America. New Bedford, the place that once called itself the city that lit the world, went into a steep decline when kerosene or paraffin began to replace whale oil in the mid-19th century. Today, however, its whaling historic site and museum attracts tens of thousands of visitors. They can experience something of a bygone enterprise that held excitement, hardship and danger in equal measure. Norman Dunlop And I'd also like to pay tribute tonight to the former president of the Irish Sailing Association, Jack Roy, who died last weekend. Jack was on the programme here several times and his talent, dedication and humour will be remembered by everyone who ever met him. The extent of his influence and popularity is evident from the many tributes paid to him internationally and in Ireland over the last few days. Now, here's a little bit more music for you. Matt Malloy with a piece of music called Fisherman's Lilt. Matt is best known as a member of the Chieftains and one of Ireland's finest flautists, but he's also a very accomplished sailor. He lives in Mayo where he runs Malloy's pub and he met Lorna Siggins recently after the death of Chieftains founder and leader Paddy Maloney.
He spoke about his introduction to sailing and his trips across the Atlantic and to Russia with polar adventurer Jardeth Canaan. He also spoke about taking his Fisher 37, named Eccentric Lady, up to Iceland several years ago. I suppose I have the boat I have now. I've been sailing, I've been about 21 years now, 20 years. Right. But before I started off scuba diving, I lived in Clare for, for seven years. Oh, right. Yeah, I lived, okay. we moved, we moved from Dublin in 81. Okay. Um, you know, when I was with the chieftains, and I said, well, sure, I don't have to be in Dublin. Yeah. So I had friends in, in I still have, in, in Ennis and County Clare, and um, between one thing and another, anyway, we finished up living there for seven years, and while I was there, then I took up the, I took up scuba. Right. And... Uh, I did quite a bit of that, like, and, and uh, you know, I had certification, and then I had, I, I used to, anywhere the chieftains were playing, when we'd get a, a list of the venues and cities that we were going to, and the, the countries we were going to, I'd be watching to see where were we near the sea, and had to be a day off, you know, right. which was often the case. Yeah. So I'd, I'd uh, be phoning ahead, and I'd, I'd organise a dive, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. You know, that could be anywhere. It could be the uh, Cape Cod, or it could be Florida, it could be Florida Keys, um, uh, San Diego. Then we were doing a tour of Japan, but we were starting in Okinawa. And I remember went off went over three or four days ahead of the band and went diving for, for a few days. From that then, I, I bought a little um, cabin cruiser, and um, I had that for a few years. And then I was thinking, and then I started sailing with a character in Galway who became a very good friend, uh, Sean Prendergast. Right. And uh, he had a, they're called a Fisher 37, they're heavy duty seagoing boat. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started sailing with him. And they're catch cutter rig. And I went down to the Canaries with him a few times, sailed down to the, you know, down cross over down the Portuguese coast and down along the. Moroccan coast and then over to the Canaries. Did that a couple of times with him, had a few, went around Ireland with him and then I just said, well, if I ever get a sailing boat, I'm going to get one of these. After my wife died, I, I, I just had to do something and I decided that's it. I had talked about doing the Atlantic, crossing the Atlantic and then after my wife died in 08, mm-hmm. uh, 21st of September 08, that was a, that was a big shock and, and um, I just thought, I have to do something now to get yeah. out, out of it and, and uh, just got the boat ready and uh, I got to know Jarlath Cunan, whom you know I believe yeah, yeah you were I saying do, yeah. 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 yeah so I was going to Jarlath for advice you know on, on, on this and should I do this or should I do that and all the usual yeah. you know the usual bits and pieces and checking about what, what charts I might need and what I might need and what I might not need and Anyway, uh, it was four of us to go, and then it was down to three, and uh, I was decided I was going anyway, and I remember talking to Jarlath about it, and he says, well, how many is finally going? And I said, well, I said, there's three of us. I said, the last three little fellas has, has dropped out. So uh, he says, well, hmm. And uh, he says, God, he says, I might, uh, he says, would you be interested in me going? And I was saying, what? <laughs> I said, of course I would. <laughs> but I said, you know, he, he just, he had his knee replaced 
about four four weeks before that, four or five weeks before that. Right, yeah. And by all accounts, it's a very painful experience, or can is, be, yeah. until things settle down. Yeah. And I was saying, geez, I said, you, 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 you know, you're not going to take an Atlantic trip with, 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 with you know, just after the, really? just after that. And he says, well, he says, I don't know. And I said, well, I said, I mean, I'd be thrilled. I said, if you could come, I said. Yeah. Because due to the, the amount of experience the man has, you know, and uh, and he says, well, I'll check it with my, I'll check with my doctor. And I said, oh, well, fair enough. He said, I'll see what he thinks. Yeah. So he <laughs> rang me, he rang me the following morning, and he says, yeah, he said that'd be okay. He says I got the all clear. I only found out later that his doctor was Mick Bogan. He's as tough as himself, you know. Like, I learned, I learned a lot though. He, he 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 could do something in about three moves that would take me about ten to do. <laughs> but he was very good, and and uh, it, it, oh, like it, it took the took the anxiety out of it for me completely. Yeah. You know. Oh, it's okay. Oh yeah, it's as cool as a breeze. Yeah, we went down to the we went down to the Cape Verdes, or the Cape Verdes, I'm not sure. and we were there for we went down there after seven or eight days. We took went down there and then uh, fished out the boat again. Mm-hmm. Like we had did a complete check on it before we left the Canaries. But then we, were, we went for Barbados, right. and uh, we were at sea over Christmas, actually. Michael Flatley is a very good friend of mine, well, yeah. and at, I'm not sure if he still has it or not, but he had a, a beach house in Barbados, mm-hmm. and it was up along the coast. Now, we had the address of it, but um, the, um, so we sailed into Carlisle Bay, eventually, right. and anchored there, and then uh, got a taxi up to the address after Mike's address, mm-hmm. and we brought a, a handheld GPS with us. Right. And then when we got to Mike's place, we took the coordinates. And the following day, we went back down, got on the boat, and brought it up the coast. Oh. Of course, spotted the house that had been in the night before, Mike's yeah. place. It's a lovely traditional beach house, like the nice. be uh, in order on it, like they could. But it was lovely, like it was small, but it was yeah. really well. Yeah, he was well. there, was he? No, no, no he, he wasn't, wasn't no, there, no. Right, yeah. he, yeah. Had, he had a friend, a caretaker, a local caretaker friend there, and he was very obliging and very helpful. But uh, we got under, we anchored outside the surf, dinkied in. And oh, we were there for, I don't know, eight or nine days, over the right. new year. And then we brought it up to St. Lucia right. and then flew home. Well, that was a nice trip. And did you send to Russia with Jarnath as well? Yeah, it was on North about, yeah. yeah. We went up around the Northern Cape. And then down into the White Sea. I had to get off at Archangel or Archangelesque because the band were playing down in Switzerland. They were going through that famous canal. But then I joined them up again after I came back then from the, the tour I was in with the, uh, the chieftains. I joined them in, in um, Scotland. Well, anyway, we did that and then we went north around, uh, north about then around, around Ireland and down into Westport. Yeah. But I did a trip then with them over to join them in Halifax and went up around in through the Brother Lakes and up into Cape Breton and up around there. That was another nice trip. Probably driving them mad. They didn't, they didn't let on. I used to, like, I had the little quarter cabin and I'd, I'd wedge myself in there and I'd, I'd play away. I could be there for hours. Then, then uh, shifts, night shifts, and, and uh, you know, we'd have two and three hour uh, shifts up in the, in the wheelhouse and I'd play away for an hour or two. Three or four years ago, anyway, uh, three of us. Yeah, we just went up north and, and up to, to the Minch and just uh, were in Storn away for two or three days. We got storm bound. We hit for the Pharaohs. We're there for a few days mm-hmm. and, and then went from there then on up to East Iceland, up to 
say just fewer over there for a few days, and then the lads were anxious to get the two lads were anxious to get back to go to work, and we legged it back and got got hammered on the way. Oh, <laughs> we got tossed around quite a bit, all right. Mm-hmm. No, it was fine though. Yeah. To, but it's it's a great boat, like it's really, it's a real heavy duty boat. Yeah. So you keep it in um, Inishlyer during during the summer. Yeah, off Inishlyer. Yeah. There's only three moorings, but then during the the winter months, then I bring it down. But I used to bring it into the into the docks, so I had it in there. But two years ago, then or whenever it was, I, I I left it late to bring it down, and the place I was to go into the docks still occupied and the man was to be lifted and he said in the meantime bring it into Rossville and he says you can come down then when it's lifted. So I brought it into Rossville and tied it up and very secure spot in there so I said sod it and leave it there. It's in Rossville now, I put it, brought it down to Rossville there a while back. I had planned to take it down to the north of Spain uh, last summer but uh, one between the reeds and the jigs anyway it didn't happen and I'd intended to leave it down there. Right. I had it in Lisbon, up the river there, one of the winters. I remember myself and, and Charlotte went down for it and, and, and uh, Conal O'Donnell. Uh, oh, yes. God, that was, we got hammered on that one as well. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's great. It's just to get out there, you know. There's a lot of things getting in my way there for the last while, but it looks like I'll have plenty of time next year. Thanks to Matt Malloy, and that piece of music is called Fisherman's Lilt or Ship in Full Sail from his album Heathery Breeze. And we'll go out on that piece of music because that's it for Seascapes for this week and for this year. We're back here in the first week of January. Until then, to all our listeners, happy Christmas and a very good new year. Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.